This is DC, the brain supreme of tag team. And you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Whoop, there it is. Sprinkles. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm very pleased to tell you that my band, Project Grand Slam, will be performing a benefit concert on Tuesday, August 17th in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, for Shakespeare and Company, a premier Shakespearean acting troupe, will be appearing in the Tina Packer Theater starting at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the area, please come out and see the band, and you'll be supporting a great cause. For tickets, just go to Shakespeare.org. My guest today is Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, formerly with Survivor and of 38 Special Fame. He's been the key guy behind two very famous songs, Vehicle, which he wrote and sang with the Ides of March, and Eye of the Tiger, which he co-wrote with Survivor. And it became the theme song from Rocky Three. 704 million views of that song on YouTube, if you can believe it. And uh, later on in this episode, you're going to hear both of those songs and you'll learn the backstory, the real deal on those songs and those bands. In the meantime, underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it at the end as well, is my featured song of this episode, and it's called 1972. This is the live version of that song that's on our album, Greetings from Serbia. And I chose this song because this song is one that I think captures the vibe of the year 1972, which was right in the midst of the timeline when Jim Peterick was writing and recording his great hits. So Jim Peterick, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm following my dream right now, Robert. I know you are. You know, I got to ask you, and I do this with a lot of my guests. When you were young, was it your dream to become a musician? Well, no, it was my dream to impress the cheerleaders in high school. (laughs) Uh, And uh, luckily, that was great motivation, and I did quite well, and it turned into a career. But I don't think, you know, when you're 13, you don't have long range plans uh, of any any nature. You just you're following what you love to do, which is make music and get up on stage and hopefully blow everybody away. But we didn't have any long range plans like the kids do now where they have marketing surveys and everything. You know, we were just playing the music we, we loved and, you know, starting as kind of a cover band, really, you know, with the early British invasion, we we're doing covers uh, by the Beatles, the Hollies, the Kinks, uh, bands like that. And then gradually we took those influences and started writing our own songs that sounded quite a bit like a, an amalgamation of all those bands. So how old were you when you had your first band? 
The first uh, band, uh, 13, when, when the Ides of March started, we weren't called the Ides of March at the time. We were called the Shondells. Uh, but of course, wait a minute. Tommy what James, happened? Tommy James had that name, right? Uh, well, yeah, we didn't know it. You know, <laughs> we, we, we called ourselves the Shondells because of Troy Shondell, who did this time we're really breaking up. Sounded like a cool name. And our first record was about to come out uh, on the Parrot label. It's called You Wouldn't Listen. And the, the 45s were almost ready to be printed. And we hear on WCFL in the Chicago, new from Tommy James and the Shondells, Hanky Panky. And we go, oh, shit. <laughs> so uh, we got a problem. We, uh, yeah, Houston. So we had a scramble for a name. And uh, Bob Berglund, our bass player to this day, we were all reading Julius Caesar. And he says, look at this. This sounds pretty sinister. Beware the Ides of March. And we had our, our new name Way better uh, name than the Shandells, in my opinion. Yeah, that was a very cool name. And also, you know, back at that in that day, this was right when horns were coming into rock groups. You had Blood, Sweat, and Tears. You had Chicago. And then the Ides of March comes out with this song, Vehicle. And you got all those horns in there. And I think even to this day, some people that don't know think that somehow or other that was a blood, sweat, and tears song, or it was a Chicago song. Tell me how you figured out to put the horns into the sound. Well, that was all a part of the whole sound we were creating. When we started in 64, we were, like I said, a British uh, invasion wannabe band. And then we kind of morphed. We added a trumpet uh, after our first hit called You Wouldn't Listen. And we, we wanted to do Sweet Soul Music. And we wanted to do I Feel Good by James Brown. So we added one trumpet. Uh, that was kind of our gateway horn. And from there, we added another horn and then a sax. And before you knew it, we had a whole brass section. And uh, I wrote this song, Trying to Get My Girlfriend Back. Long story, but my girlfriend dumped me. And then she starts asking me for rides to, to modeling school. And no, it's not a date, Jim. I'm just, I just need a lift, you know. So sure, you know, so after about two months of that, I go, you know, all I am to you, I won't say your name, but I will, Karen, <laughs> all I am is your vehicle, baby, you know, and right then and there, I know a good hook when I hear one. So I, I went home and um, I th heard this riff in my head, you know, ba -da -ba -ba -da, you know, it's like, yeah, you know. Called the Ides to Arms, and we worked out this song, and the, the brass section helped helped us arrange it. And before you knew it, we were in the studio at CBS Recording Studio with our uh, producers, and we weren't even that excited about it. We, we said, well, you know, this is a neat song for dances, but it's really not a single. Well, what did we know? We sent it to the record company. They said, you know that fourth song, the one you don't think too much of, that's a number one record. And we go, really? Yeah, that's how much we knew. And uh, <laughs> it became the fastest uh, fastest rising song, the most added record in Warner Brothers history at the time. And uh, this was the summer of six, no, summer of 70, right. uh, as spring and summer. And suddenly us kids were all on the road. I was 19 with groups like Led Zeppelin, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the Grateful Dead, Poco. Uh, this this was a great summer uh, for the festivals. 
And uh, we were out there playing vehicle every night in Canada, in America. Wow, what a great time. All right, so you jumped the gun on my song fest, so I'm going to make you do something. Oh. You're, you're holding a, you're holding the a guitar in your hands. I am. I want to hear you sing a little bit of Vehicle, so make sure people remember this song. All right, all right. You got to help me with the, the horn section, everybody out there. Ba -ba -da -da -da. Ta -da. Hey, you got a good pitch there, uh, Robert. Okay, you ready? I didn't warm up my vocal, so it's going to be a little rough, but that's okay. Well, two. Ba -da -ba -ba -da. Keep going. Ba, ba, da, da, ba, da. Hey, well, I'm a friendly stranger in the black sedan. I want you hop inside my car. I got pictures, got candy, I'm a lovable man, and I can take you to the nearest star. I'm your vehicle, baby. All right, almost duet there. That was great. Jim Peterick playing Vehicle. That was his monster hit from 1970. So you're now, you're 19 years old. You're on the road. You're playing with all these fabulous musicians. This got to be like a dream come true at that point, right? Totally. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, but we just knew, we're like, <laughs> this was a magic time. We knew that. And we were invited to this big uh, penthouse party with Led Zeppelin in, in Canada. Uh, in um, what, what city was that? Doesn't matter. Anyway, we went Winnipeg. And we had a great show that night. And, and Zeppelin had a very bad night because they're pissed off the terrible PA section, uh, system. We didn't care. We were used to bad systems. And after every number, we'd get a standing ovation from the crowd of, of 20,000 people. And it was the night of our lives. But at, at, at the end of the night, Robert Plant says, why don't you guys join us at our party in the penthouse? And of course, they were in the penthouse. We were at the Motel 6 or whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, sure, you know. So we show up uh, at the door, knock, 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 and op open the door. It's Robert Plant in his little uh, bikini briefs, you know, bare-chested, looking like, you know, the long-haired Adonis. And behind him are all a, a troop of groupies uh, that were all like play pillow fights and goofing around. And the four of us are standing there going, what the, where did, what did we wander into here? You know, and uh, I, I had to go to the restroom. I go to the restroom and there's Bonzo in the bathtub with a girl. Uh, and we're going, what the hell's going on? So uh, gradually we're kind of out of our comfort zone. So uh, went to the door and said, Robert, thank you for inviting us, but we got to go. <laughs> you know, we didn't do drugs. We didn't drink booze, nothing like that. We're the cleanest cut kids from Berwyn that you ever met. And he said, oh, I understand. So we left and we went across the street to like Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Honest to God. And we had our, our donuts and milk 
And we were back in our comfort zone. I'll never forget that. Right, oh, by the not, way, that's not a real rock and roll story, but you know, it, it's our, I understand completely. It's our version of a rock and roll story. The next morning, uh, the headline read, I'd smart steal the show. And, um, I still have that headline. It wow. Was really quite a moment. So you're lucky that it was the next morning, because if that had come out before you got the invite to the party, you never would have got the invite to the party. Exactly. We never got invited again either. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you're on the road. You're you're playing with all these super bands. You got a monster hit on your hands. And what happened after that? I mean, there came a point in time where I'm sure things started to fall off or whatever. And that's the trajectory of what happens in rock and roll. So tell us about that. Right. Well, you know, we had our idea of what should be the, the follow-up single. The I felt era good feeling from that first album was the obvious choice, but Warner Brothers, in their divine wisdom, said no, no, it doesn't sound enough like the hit vehicle. So right. they wanted the same song again, right? They wanted the cookie cutter thing. Yep. And well, we wanted to oblige, and I I wrote a song called Superman, and it was very reminiscent. Instead of Great God in Heaven, it was Great Caesar's Ghost, I Am Your Superman. You know, <laughs> oh, my God. It was a typical ripoff of myself. And they put it out, and it, it stiffed. It stiffed. I mean, it went to number 17 on the billboard, but no great shakes. I still regret that they did uh, release Air Good Feeling. But anyway, uh, then we put out a song called L.A. Goodbye, which was number one in Chicago for five weeks in a row didn't totally break through. It was like top 50 on the Billboard charts. And about that time, Warner Brothers dropped us, and we signed with RCA and had two more albums, which were very well-received, but again, good music, no hits. So that's when, unfortunately, we did take a hiatus, and I, I put out a solo album called Jim Peterick, Don't Fight the Feeling, which came out in 76 on Epic Records. And suddenly I was on tour with Boston and Hart. In fact, I was there for the second gig that that Boston ever did at a theater here in Chicago called The Uptown. And I remember Brad Delp being so shit scared that I had to literally push him on stage. And he was like, well, because we were talking backstage. He said, this is my second gig in life. <laughs> so I push him on stage and he, and he, he makes it there. By the third number, he's Sammy Davis Jr. and loving it, you know. And he still, be up to the day he died, he thanked me for pushing him out there. You know, the, the era that you're describing with the record labels, it was all about hits, as you said. And if you had a hit, great. If you didn't have a hit, they didn't want to know from you anymore. And, you know, so many of these labels, they would sign as many bands as they could. And figuratively, they'd throw it against the wall. And if something stuck, they went after it. They chased it. If it didn't stick, they said goodbye to you. Yeah. Well, it's true. Um, but it's even worse now. I mean, uh, I when we signed with the Scotty Brothers, you know, I'm leaping ahead a little bit. When, when Survivor was signed, those guys stuck with us. We had two stiff albums before our breakthrough. The first album was just called Survivor. It had a picture of a girl, but apparently it wasn't. And on the back, there's us standing in front of a flaming wreck of an airplane. Hence, we're survivors, get it? <laughs> and uh, 
and that album kind of got us in the door. We had a couple songs that got some airplay, a thing called Somewhere in America, but nothing really broke through. Second album, we changed our rhythm section to the final rhythm section, which was uh, Stefan Ellis and Mark Trubay, and that's when we really found our sound. And uh, we went in the studio and we cut a great album called Premonition. And again, more footholds, uh, but still the Scotty Brothers fully believed in us. And good thing they did because that spring I get the famous call from Sylvester Stallone. And I thought someone was putting me on. It was on my message machine. And I hear, hey, yo, Jim, that's a nice answering machine you got there. Give me a call, Sylvester Stallone. And I go, yeah, right. You know, thought someone was putting me on. <laughs> and my wife heard it, uh, that same girl, Karen. And uh, she said, you know, you better call him back just on the off chance that's really Stallone. So I called him back very tentatively. And I go, this is Jim Peter. Is this really Sylvester Stallone? He goes, hey, Jimbo, call me Sly. You know, <laughs> okay, kid from Berwyn, I'm calling my hero Sly, right? So we start talking. He said, Look, Tony Scotty played me uh, your premonition album. That's the sound I want for my new movie. I mean, going to fly now, that's a nice song. But I want something for the kids, something with a pulse. Can you help me out? I said, absolutely. And uh, he sent us the rough cut of the movie. I rented a Betamax Pro, set it on the kitchen table, invited Frankie Sullivan, the guitar player of Survivor, and... We watched that that uh, movie, and, and actually, in the first three minutes, we kind of got the the feel of it. And I had my uh, Les Paul around my neck, and it just started going, you know, like that. And I see the punches throwing, and I start going. Wait for the punch. But that's all we had. <laughs> Stallone, I said, we got the intro, but you got to send us the whole movie, not just the first three minutes. And he's like, well, we can't do it. You know, the movie company. I said, you got to do it. Oh, you got to send it right back. Okay, got it. So the next morning, FedEx arrives again. And this time we see the whole storyline. And when Mickey, the trainer, starts going, Rocky, you're losing the eye of the tiger. Eye of the tiger. There's our title. So in other words, the line was from the movie. Correct. Uh -huh. Correct. And um, Stallone was a real champ, man. You know, I, in fact, some guys like in Stallone's position would have said, hey, I want to be a co-writer, you know. Right. And I even asked him years later, why didn't you take, uh, you know, co-writing or publishing? He's like, oh, no, I didn't write the song. I, hey, that's, that's, that's you guys, you know. God bless him, you know. Just a great stand-up stand guy. And uh, went in the studio and cut the demo. And still, uh, Stallone goes, you really did it. But you kind of got, got cheap on me. You didn't write a third verse. I go, oh, yeah, shit, yeah. And uh, we went back to the studio. I wrote the third, third verse. Kind of cheated a little bit. Instead of rising up, back on the street, did my time, took my chances. It became rising up straight to the top. Did my time, take my, you know, just little things. He was very happy with the, the modification. And suddenly we had a number one record and it was number one for seven weeks on, on Billboard.
unbelievable. Now, did that song, did it come out before the movie or with the movie? With, with, with the movie. Okay. So yeah. once the movie came out, the, the radio and everybody else kind of picked up on that song and just ran with it. It was immense. You, you, you know, the timing was great. The movie was fantastic. I remember, you know, being on the red carpet in Hollywood for the big premiere. And, you know, the audiences are kind of jaded there and they're like, oh, that's really good. You know, they like the song, you know, but, you know, they're very reserved and we were pretty happy with it. But three weeks later, I sneak into my local theater, the, the LaGrange Theater in LaGrange, which at the time of where I was living. And I, I sneak into the back row, you know, and with the dark glasses, you know, very inconspicuous, right? And um, not and with it, the purple hair back then. Huh? No, no purple hair, just just boring brown. But anyway, okay. so I'm back there, and as soon as digga 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 it starts, the whole audience goes apeshit, you know. And that's when we knew. That's what I knew. We had something major on our hands. Well, stuff like that. It's like catching lightning in a bottle, right? I started right. off, I mentioned that I was checking it out on YouTube, 700 million views of Eye of the Tiger. Okay, even at the crummy reimbursement rate from YouTube, that's a lot of dough. Unbelievable. I know. I mean, it's unprecedented. You know, I don't keep ch ch uh, tabs of that. Uh, unless through the my bank account, but that, that's pretty amazing. Well, that must keep your bank account pretty full. I like not, that not idea. Not bad, not a bad deal. Well, okay, so you did that song, and Stallone is now your 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 mentor, your benefactor, I should say. And then he used another one of your songs in another movie, right? Or he used Vehicle in Lockup. Is that correct? That is correct which proves he was a big fan of Vehicle in the Ides of March long before Eye of the Tiger. In fact, and this is off the record. Sure, it's off the record. No, it's not <laughs> off the record. But I always felt that Gonna Fly Now was reminiscent of Vehicle, where he might have told uh, you know Bill Conti, well, this is a song called Vehicle. If you listen to the progression and the, the instrumental break and the guitar... Not that they ripped me off, but it was influenced by vehicles. So this was his chance of actually using the prototype. And uh, in the movie, they're restoring a, a, a Mustang in prison. And ba ba da ba ba da you know, it's, it was just great usage of that song. So did he know that you were the guy behind Vehicle? At yeah. The, at once he knew that you also wrote Eye of the Tiger? He knew that you were b doing both. Yes, he did. He, he kind of knew my history. It was a big fan of a vehicle way before Rocky, you know. Well, that's terrific. Tell me what's happened since then, okay? That was a while ago. I know you're still playing rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and you, we've got this other song that we're going to be playing underneath as we talk, where you, you did a song with Mark Farner from <laughs> Grand Funk Railroad called Swagger.
and uh, I thought it was a pretty cool song. Tell us about that. Thank you. Well, we, we started doing shows with Mark. You know, I have a thing called Jim Peterkin World Stage. I do that at least once a year in January, and it's Jim and my very special guests. And there's a lot of repeaters uh, through the years, like Don Barnes of 38 Special and Jack Blades and Kelly Kagi and Night Ranger. Kind of like a big 80s fest, you know. I have some newer acts, but it's really an 80s show, pretty much. And um, so Mark was one of the one of the guests on uh, World Stage, and he stayed a couple of uh, days later. And I had this song that I wanted to put on the new Ides of March album, which just came out during the COVID times, called um, Play Hot. And um, it's just a terrific album. It's getting a second chance now, now that uh, we're ostensibly COVID-free, but whatever. Uh, we're playing live now, and, and it's great. But Farner stayed later after World Stage, and he helped me finish Swagger. And recorded it in my studio right here, where you're sitting, where I'm sitting. And we became really even better friends. Now we do shows together and we're best of friends. You know, it's interesting because Grand Funk was extremely big, you know, right around that same time as Vehicle, right? Yep. Around 1970 yep. or so. Totally. Um, Three-piece band, you know, it, it kind of, it was almost like an echo of, of an American echo of Cream in a sense. Yeah. And uh, then they kind of vanished. I don't. I didn't know what had happened to them. So I w it was nice to see Mark Farner playing again and playing with you. Yeah, it, it really was. And um, we used to play in that day, 69, 70, all the pop festivals. We were on stage uh, opening up for, for uh, Grand Funk. And there was this great lead, lead singer and guitar player. one of my heroes in the long, long hair and the... <laughs> you know, the arms with the biceps and the, and the fringe on the bicep. And he was like a hero of mine, you know. And we used to kind of get together after shows and have a, have a sandwich or a beer or whatever. And it turns out I'm, I'm working with him now, which is another big thrill. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so what's in the future for Jim Peterick? Wow. Well, um, you know, the Ides of March are back on the road. Uh, we just played Ravinia, which is you know one of the great outdoor, semi-outdoor venues in Chicago. Uh, it's where I saw so many great concerts through the years, including the Beach Boys and on and on and on, the Doobie Brothers. And suddenly we're on stage uh, just killing it on Ravinia. So that was like a real uh, milestone for the band. And we, we did great. Then we did about three more shows. And uh, now we got shows coming up. It's great to be back playing. Uh, aside from that, I'm, I'm working with the group Chicago. They, they're going to have a new album coming out on BMG probably around December. And I'm writing with Robert Lamb for that album. Again, uh, the Ides March opened for Chicago about three years ago. And we started talking after the show. And everybody says, oh, let's get together and write. And nobody does it. We actually followed through huh. and started writing songs. And it's just we have great chemistry. We wrote some, I think, some really great songs. So um, that's very cool. And uh, yeah, uh, Dennis DeYoung and I are writing uh, for, well, he just put out part two of 26 East. He lives literally a block and a half from me, which is 
fantastic. So sometimes I'll just walk over there and we'll write a song. Uh, but part one of, of that, that uh, album, 26 Eats, came out about seven, eight months ago. And on June 15th, part two came out. And uh, it's on Frontiers Records. It's, it's doing extremely well. And Dennis is just, he was to me the voice of, of Sticks. I mean, Tommy Shaw's great, and he's still carrying on with the, with the name Sticks. Where Dennis is capitalizing on Dennis DeYoung, formerly of Sticks, uh-huh. but doing very, very well. Good. All right, I got to ask you this question. I hear a rumor that you own 193 guitars. Is that true? That's that's a lie. It's 255. <laughs> and uh, I know that sounds sick, doesn't it? It but sounds unusual. But, unusual. Um... <laughs> not sick. Okay, good. I'll tell my wife you said unusual. But where do you put them all? Well, I, I have guitars all over the house. I mean, literally in, in bathrooms, in bedrooms, in the basement, racks all over. If I could take you in there... This is the main recording room right now. Uh-huh. But if you took, took you in the drum room, lined with vintage guitars, they're not all vintage guitars. Some are just cool guitars. Some are new. But, you know, my favorite ones are like vintage uh, Gibson Les Pauls, uh, Fender Strats, Fender Telecasters, the ones that everybody wants. And you know? where'd you get them all? Did, you, did people give them to you? Did you find them places? Uh, no one gave me anything. <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, when I was on the road with, with Ides of March and Survivor, I used to go to all the pawn shops. That's when you could still get a, like, under-the-bed deal. You can't anymore. But I got a fair amount of really cool stuff at pawn shops in, in the 60s and 70s. I, I got to tell you my story. You know, I'm a bass player. Okay. And uh, back in around 1974, I walked into a pawn shop. I've told this story on the podcast before. And there was a Fender Precision bass hanging on the wall. And at that time, one of my heroes was a guy named Jim Fielder from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Love him. And he played the you know Fender Precision, and he played it almost like an upright bass. Yeah. I saw that guitar on the wall, and I asked the guy, "How much do you want for it?" He says, "A hundred bucks." <laughs> and I got myself you know a 1960 Fender Precision for a hundred dollars, probably my best investment ever. Oh my God, do you still have it? I still have it. Still record and play with it. Is yep. it a Sunburst or what is it? Sunburst, yes. Dude, so that was fun. That was fun. That's a great Uh, story. Listen, we've been talking to Jim Peter. Jim, you know, this is a podcast called Follow Your Dream. And I like to ask my guests who are successes like yourself, what would you say to somebody who has a dream, but has either not pursued it, or maybe has pursued it, but just hasn't succeeded yet? What would be your advice? Well, I always say... Follow your dream, but make sure your dream follows your talent. Uh, You know, I think there's so much of follow your dream. You can do anything. You can't do anything. I think we each have a special God-given talent. It may not be music. It may not be songwriting. And yet there are parents that want to push their kids on stage. Follow your dream. Well, make sure that dream is your kid's dream, not your dream for your kid. And that's my biggest advice. I think if you really want it, you don't have to tell your kid to practice. The kid will practice. He will play. Just like 
everybody in the Ides of March, nobody said practice. No, we just did it because we were so passionate about it. So that's that's the way I feel about it. Well, I agree that it's got to be a realistic dream. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with Jim Peterick, who was uh, a colossal hit with the Ides of March and Vehicle, and then with Survivor and Eye of the Tiger. And he's still going strong. And if you guys could all see what I see, you'd see this awesome purple hair that he's got. <laughs> okay. Jim, I want to wish you the best. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, it was great talking to you, Robert. Very interesting questions. And thank you for having me on. Here are the key takeaways from my interview with Jim Peterick. Make sure that your dream follows your talent. And also, make sure that your dream is yours and not someone else's. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. 